Father, from reading that psalm just now, we see much anguish and much much suffering. The experience of David, perhaps we can relate to experiences in our own lives. But Lord, we, as well as looking at ourselves, we want to look to Jesus. And so Lord, would you show us Jesus this morning and in the next five weeks as we look at this psalm. Father, we know that there are some dark experiences, dark images, dark pictures. Heavy stuff to go through and to think through, so Lord, would you prepare us for that. But also help us to remember how the psalm ends in great victory, in triumph, as you conquer. Lord, prepare our hearts. May we receive from you. Come speak to us by your Spirit. Help me. Give me the words to say. In Jesus' name. Amen. As we have heard, or been hearing recently, it's been a season of missions at Oxford University and Brooks University. Time to proclaim the gospel. It's been great, and that was done very well. A time also to give a good biblical answer to some of the really difficult questions of life. One of those hard questions that people ask is about suffering. Why, if God is so good and so powerful, does he allow suffering and such terrible suffering in our world? It's a question that people ask not just to have an excuse for not believing, but because those who ask the question often have a real genuine interest in it. They are the ones who are suffering, and they don't understand why God allows it. We watch TV, we watch the news, and it's almost constant suffering, isn't it, around the world. There's suffering in our nation, in our neighborhood, suffering in our homes, in our own lives. And we ask the question, what is going on? Why do these things Happen. There seems to be a disconnect between a God who's good and a God who's powerful, and yet one who seems to allow suffering just to continue and continue. Maybe this morning you're not a Christian, and it's the suffering question that is what stops you from coming to God. You've experienced something of that in your own life, and you don't understand why God would allow these things. Maybe you are a Christian. And you understand something of why suffering happens in our, in our world, in a fallen world. You even acknowledge that God has suffered in Jesus, and you, we see that in the cross. And yet, we still, we still struggle with that. We still doubt, does God really understand? Does, does, does Christ's suffering really compare with mine? And he was on the cross, yes, but he knew it was going to happen. He knew what was happening. It was a short time. He knew what was going to happen afterwards. So was it really that bad? My suffering has gone on for ages. It suffers in all sorts of different types of ways, and so does God really understand? George Bernard Shaw was a 1925 Nobel Prize winner, and he wrote this about how atheists are made. He says, in probably nine out of ten cases, what happens is something like this. A beloved wife or husband or child or sweetheart, is gnawed to death by cancer. Stultified by epilepsy, struck dumb and helpless by apoplexy, 
or strangled by croup or diphtheria. And the looker-on, after praying vainly to God to refrain from such wanton cruelty, indignantly repudiates faith in the divine monster and becomes not merely indifferent and sceptical, but fiercely and actively hostile to religion. So as we look at Psalm 22, as we zoom in to the verses, as we meditate on this psalm leading up to Easter, I hope and pray that we will see something of Jesus and his suffering, his true suffering that he went through. But that we will also see something of his great victory that he won for us too, through his death and his resurrection. As Dan has told us, this psalm is indeed a psalm of David. He wrote it. David certainly did experience various types of suffering in his life, but when we look at this psalm, it's hard to think what kind of suffering this relates to his life, with such such anguish and such death. And what compares in his life to such victory, such universal scope of his, his suffering? So David truly is writing, some bringing his experiences in, but he is ultimately led by the Holy Spirit to, to look into the future and to prophesy the very words and experiences that will literally be filled by Jesus on the cross. Those familiar verses, verse 1, we know, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But as you read through this, the, the, the psalm, you see suffering and ridicule and hatred, mocking, you see enemies, physical weakness and death. And we can be so familiar with the cross, can't we, as Christians? We, we sing about the cross, we talk about the cross, we preach about the cross. Every week we hear about the cross. And we know that Jesus has died for our sins. But what was it really like for him there on that day, hanging upon the cross? In a sense, as we look at Psalm 22, this is the best way we have to to get inside Jesus' head, as it were. To know what is he thinking, what is he feeling, what is he saying as he dies for the sins of the world. This morning we're going to zoom in on verses 1 to 5. We'll think about the anguish, the anguish of abandonment. Then look about trusting, trusting in the Deliverer. So firstly, anguish of abandonment. Verse 1, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? My God, I cry out by day and you do not answer. By night and I find no rest. Whatever David's experience is that he's drawing on, Here we have one who was close to God in in that relationship and yet feels that that relationship is over. He feels forsaken. What are the experiences of suffering we know David went through? Well, he was anointed king by Samuel, but then he's on the run from Saul and he's hunted down. We know that David experienced such guilt and shame as he is found out committing adultery and murder. What about his time running and again hiding from his son who's taken over his throne towards the end of his life? 
Maybe it's David on his deathbed thinking about his life. Or maybe it's a mixture of all these different things. It doesn't really matter. What matters is that he feels abandoned. He feels forsaken. What's, what does it mean to be forsaken? Well, it means to be abandoned, to be, to be left completely alone, to be rejected, deserted, to be turned upon almost. Did God do that to David? Did, does God abandon his people? Isn't that against his covenant with those who are in relationship with him? And we see whatever his situation was, David cries out, my God, my God, is that, it's personal for him. As you read the Psalms, David is one who speaks so much of his relationship with God, such closeness and intimacy. And yet all that is just, is not here anymore. That relationship seems to be over for him. He feels forsaken. And that forsakenness is characterized in, in two ways in verses, in verses two. It's characterized by God being distant, but also by God being silent, not answering his prayers. It says, why are you so far, so far from saving me, so far from my cries of anguish? David is, is in need of God. He's great. He needs help and deliverance. And, and when he needs God most, it seems that God is not there. God is absent. David doesn't feel his presence. God's hand of protection doesn't seem to be over covering him. God's words of comfort are not heard. He, he feels like he's been left. He's not able to save. He's not able to hear the cries of anguish because he's so far away. God is distant and God is silent. Verse 2, my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, but I find no rest. David is, has not turned his back on God. He's crying out. He wants help. He's seeking his deliverer. He's looking for his saviour. But his prayers, it's like they're falling on deaf ears. There's no answer. There's no response. By day, by night, continually seeking God. He's persistent in his prayer, but there just seems to be no answer. We don't know. But you can imagine that perhaps for David... Many of these experiences are feelings, feeling abandoned, perhaps when he committed adultery with Bathsheba and then murdered her husband to cover it up. That feeling of, of shame and of guilt and of embarrassment, particularly as his sin is exposed by the prophet Nathan. But then the feeling of deep anguish as his son is born, is sick and then dies. And David's crying out to God for mercy that feeling of that he's let God down, he is God's king, and yet he's sinned in such a great way. And in Psalm 51, he says, against you and you only have I sinned. You can imagine such failure and deep shame and sorrow, God's judgment and the lack of peace. Have you ever felt feelings of abandonment? Do you feel now that it's like God has abandoned you and forsaken you? Have you experienced times in life where it just seems that God is far away, but he doesn't seem to answer your prayers? Whether it's sin in your life, sin that you're battling with in your heart, 
whether it's a life circumstance that just seems too unbearable, too unfair. We cry out to God, but it just feels like he's so distant and so silent that we don't know what to do. I think when we sin, when we go through times of sin, this can be particularly real for us. We've just finished a, a sermon series on sin, haven't we? Two months of learning different words and metaphors for what sin is. We thought about the, the depth of sin and the seriousness of sin. And particularly looking at our relational aspect of, of sin, that you know it's it's personal. Sin is not just about breaking God's rules, it's about breaking God's heart. And perhaps God has been exposing sin in your life and this it really hurts. God has given us so much, but we've thrown it back in his face. We're married to God, but we sleep with his enemies. There's that uncleanness, that filth and that dirt. And as we allow God to expose ourselves, expose sin in ourselves, there is the natural feeling of shame and of guilt. And we ourselves don't want to come to God in prayer because we feel shame and guilt. And that relationship seems to fall apart. We know is. We grow as, as Christians. Yes, the Lord changes our hearts and we become more like Jesus. But we also know that there are just things in our life that we just don't seem to be able to shift. That sin that keeps coming back again and again. And we feel like a failure. We can't even live up to our own standard, let alone the life that God wants us to live. Maybe there's a sin that we know we have committed and we think it's just the last straw. Why would God bother with me anymore? We cry out to him for mercy and salvation, but he doesn't feel like he answers. We pray, but the longer we pray, the longer the silence, the harder it gets. The deeper the anguish and the lack of peace, then we find no rest, just like David in verse 2. What about the unbearable circumstances in life? Again, we cry out to God for mercy, asking him to help us, to, to deliver us, to, to be near us. And, and sometimes it just feels like silence. Where is God? Does he care? We cry out by night. Those things play around in our mind as we fall asleep. And then we wake up the next morning and they're there still. We dread the day that we are about to face. Perhaps we think, what is what have I done? Have I messed up here? Is there... A sin that I've committed that means that God has abandoned me. I remember when I was a student. I was in a long-term relationship with another student. After a couple of years, our relationship was just in a real mess. We were living ungodly lives together. She was waiting for a ring on the finger. I wasn't there. We've messed it up big time. Real deep anguish. I didn't know what to do. I was fearful of breaking her heart, so I tried so desperately to fix things, to put it right, to love her, to pray for her, to confess and repent of my sin, but sin kept coming back and biting us. I knew God wasn't happy with how we conducted our relationship. I was so ashamed to talk to anybody else about it. It just screwed me up on the inside. There were times when I would jump on my bed, crying out to God for help. There were times when I would sit and I would sob and just sob uncontrollably. 
feeling like I've messed up my life, I've destroyed her life, God had let me down. I mean, I'd let God down. What hope was there? How could he use me in ministry in the future? Do you relate to these verses? But this morning, yes, we look at David, the writer of the psalm, and we think about our own lives and suffering, feeling of abandonment. But truly these words are written of Jesus. He's the one who literally experienced these things himself on the cross. And this is what we need to grasp this morning. This is our focus. So take your eyes off of yourself and look to him. Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Famous words written in Matthew's Gospel, spoken by Jesus there on the cross. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus Christ. This is Jesus. This is the Son of God. This is the second person of the Trinity. This is the one whom God said, this is my Son in whom I am well pleased. This is the one who in John's Gospel says, I only do what the Father tells me to do. This is the one who in Hebrews, it said, he was tempted in every way, yet did not sin. And yet he's abandoned, he's forsaken. Was Jesus really forsaken by God on that day? Was he left? Was he abandoned? Was he rejected? Was he turned upon that very hour? Yes. Whether Jesus quotes more of this psalm on the cross, we don't know. But he's experiencing at that moment what it's like to be far from God. To have the silence of God in his ears. Yes, Jesus suffered anguish and pain and torment on the cross. But it's not his physical pain that causes him to say, My God, why have you forsaken me? But it's that deep spiritual pain. as He bears the weight of sin upon himself. Jesus becoming sin for us. He who knew that perfect relationship with the Father bears the wrath of the Father as he takes punishment for sin. He has that unique relationship with God. He's one with God in his divine nature. He's perfect in his human nature. And yet now he's experiencing the weight of sin and God turns his face away. He forsakes Jesus there upon the cross. God cannot look upon sin. He can't bear it. it. It repulses him. And so he punishes Jesus right there. And so Jesus really was forsaken completely. And he died in that forsaken state. And so friends, this morning, God forsakenness, that is the ultimate penalty for sin. Sin, we know, separates us from God. We live in a broken relationship with him. Adam and Eve ate of that fruit in the garden. That relationship was severed. They didn't die straight away. They weren't cast eternally out of God's presence. But they did feel their nakedness. They did start to die physically, but, but God withheld his full wrath. 
And in that garden, we see the first glimpse of mercy, the first glimpse of grace and of hope. As Adam and Eve are told that one day one of your seeds will come and and he will ultimately deal with sin and death. And that one is Jesus. He bears the wrath of the sins of the world. He is forsaken so that we don't have to. And so for all those who love and trust and believe in Jesus, who trust in his work upon the cross, they will be saved. Jesus instead of us. That is the wonder, the beauty of the cross. But for all those who don't trust in Jesus, they will still one day face God's eternal abandonment. Jesus says to his disciples, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom, but some will come and I will say, I never knew you. Depart from me. So however desperate you may feel this morning, however far from God your experience may be, however abandoned you may feel from life that you've lived, from the experiences that you you, you go through, We do know that God does understand. We do know that he cares. We know that he hasn't abandoned you. That he's not far away, that he's not distant, that he's not silent, but that he is near, that he is here. And we can then join with David in verses 3 to 5, and we can look to him and we can trust. We can trust in God. Because he was forsaken He took upon himself the sins of the world. He took upon himself the wrath that we deserved. So we can be free. We can remain in our relationship with him. And so the anguish of abandonment means that we can trust in a deliverer. David writes from some experience some experience of forsakenness, and yet he writes, Yet, but, you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the one Israel praises. In you our ancestors put their trust. They trusted in you, and you delivered them. To you they cried out and were saved. In you they trusted and were not put to shame. David is in the midst of his experience, of his suffering, and he looks to God. He looks to God's nature, to who he is, and his character, and he reassures himself that God is good, that he's perfect, that he's holy. He looks at God's works and his track record, and he sees that God is one who's continually delivered his people and saved them and rescued them from their time of trouble. Israel suffered, David suffered, and Jesus suffered, but they looked to God. They looked and they put their trust in the one that truly saves. And so can we look and trust in him. They trusted in in God and David recognized who he was. He is the Holy One. The one set apart, who is altogether different, who is perfect, who is the uncreated one. 
He's not just the Holy One, but he's the Holy One who is enthroned, who is real and alive and, and ruling and reigning in heaven over all things. He's the one whom Israel praises. God is their God. He's Yahweh. He's the Lord, the one in whom Israel praises. And so they acknowledge him and they worship him. He is the one whom they are in covenant relationship with. And so David, too, is a, is a part of that. They see who God is in his character, that he is the unchanging God, the one God who keeps his covenant. And although they may feel abandoned in the times of trouble and distress, God is still God. He does not change. And so we can remember that in our times of anguish and distress, God is still God. He has the power. He has the authority. He has the control. Not only that, but he is the one who is holy, who is set apart. That doesn't mean that he's cold and distant and separate and uh, distinct, separate from us, but that he's come, that he's constant, that he never changes. He doesn't change depending on our, our, our relationship with him. His love for us doesn't go up and down according to our sin, but that he's always good and gracious and great, and we can always trust in him. And it's because we can trust in him and who he is that we can come to him and we can cry out to him in our time of need. Because we know who God is, that no matter what our experience is, no matter what sin we have committed, he is the same and he will always welcome us. He has a listening ear. He's ready there to help. Israel didn't run away forever. Although many of their troubles are self-inflicted, and they made a mess of their lives, just like we do. They always kept coming back to him. Think of the many times that Israel sinned. Times in Judges when you have sin after sin after sin. And yet they also cried out to God again and again. And God delivered them again and again. Other times in the kings, when you have king after king who just does evil in the eyes of the Lord. Then God sends them off into exile. Surely that is the last straw. He's had enough. He can't cope with these people anymore. Has God given up on his people? No. Because in exile, he sends his messenger who goes to them and, and brings them a hope of promise. That I still love you. That I have not forgotten the covenant. And I will come to you. The people cried out to God. David cried out to God. And so can we, when we look to God, we look to his track record, we see him as a faithful, loving, caring God, a God who has dealt with sin in Jesus. All sin in Jesus. The past and the present and the future, no matter how deep the sin may be in your life, it's been dealt with. And we can look to him. God who never sees his people be put to shame. And we can see how that last verse there, the last sentence in verse 5, links back to verse 1. You see, God never lets his people be forsaken, ultimately because Jesus was forsaken. He was the one that was abandoned. He was the one that took the guilt and the shame. 
someone helpfully said that we are saved from suffering and death. But Jesus, he wasn't saved from suffering and death. He was saved through suffering and death. And he did, he went through it all the way to the end, all the way to death. And so friends, as we, as we suffer, as we go through times of anguish, as we think about this psalm over the next five weeks, in times when God does feel distant and silent, when it feels perhaps that he has forsaken us, let's grasp and take a glimpse of this thoughts and words of Jesus. Cross doesn't promise freedom and from suffering in this life, but it does promise freedom from eternal forsakenness. And that is free for all those who trust in the Lord Jesus. Let's take a moment to pause quietly by ourselves, to pray, reflect, to confess, to thank and praise Jesus for taking the sin for us. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for Jesus. Thank you for sending your Son, one with whom you have this eternal, perfect, loving relationship with, one who became a man, who suffered and died upon the cross, who bore the weight of sin, the wrath of sin, who truly knew what it meant to be abandoned, to be forsaken. Thank you that when we look into our lives, we see the sin that we commit, sin that we don't seem to be able to shake. Times when we feel so far away from you, we feel so guilty and so ashamed that we ask the question, why, why would you really bother with us? Thank you that you do bother, that you do care, that your love is so great and your mercy ever flowing. <clears throat> Thank you that we can know you, we can be in relationship with you because Jesus was forsaken for us. And Lord, through whatever suffering we may experience day by day, however unbearable it may be, however much we just don't understand, may we not run away from you forever, but would we run to you, the one who has a perfect track record, one who does deliver his people, who does help, one who sustains and gives hope in the midst of trials and suffering, one who is at work in the midst of those times. Help us to remember who you are and what you've done 
and to trust in you. And Father, we pray that as we look further at this psalm, we'd see more of Jesus, his words, his experiences for us. And that would help us to trust in him more. We look all around us, as we thought about at the beginning, suffering of the world and so much war and famine and heartache and disease and illness and death. It would be so easy to look at the world and think, well, then surely isn't, there is no God. Because why would a God allow such pain and such suffering? We know that in the big picture, all this happens because we have turned away from you. We have rebelled against you, but yet you've not completely abandoned us. Really, what we deserve is so much more and so much worse than all the suffering that we experience. We are getting off lightly in a way. Why? Because you love us. And you have ultimately dealt with death and evil and suffering at the cross through Jesus. Lord, we pray for the many Christians who are seeking to bear witness to this truth and yet are experiencing suffering themselves. Bless them. Help them not to give up on you. Help them to keep trusting you, to looking to you, seeing you at work through the suffering to bring salvation. How deep the Father's love for us. How vast beyond all measure that he should give his only son to make a wretch his treasure. How great the pain of searing loss. The Father turns his face away as wounds which mar the chosen one bring many sons to glory. Let's stand together and sing this together. <laughs>